Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, October 21st, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on in our program, uh, we'll feature our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have dispatches on the ongoing seas of Gaza and the international implications of the crisis. This episode will review the address delivered by Republic of South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa at the Cairo summit on the Gaza siege that was held earlier today. Other segments analyze the humanitarian crisis among the Palestinians and the regional implications of the ongoing siege. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned, listen closely. We're going to our musical interlude uh, with the revolutionary voice of Egypt, Um Kalsum. Let's listen in carefully.
Yes, I'm 
ورجعت تسقي من فضلك كاني 
Welcome back, and uh, that was the Revolutionary Voice of Egypt, uh, Um Kalsum, uh, live in concert uh, with the orchestra, and uh, that uh, was called Hagatak. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, October 21st, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. People have taken to the streets of Australia's biggest city, Sydney, 
and the British capital, London, to join the worldwide protest against Israel's brutal bombardment of the Gaza Strip. About 100,000 people marched in central London uh, earlier today, calling for an end to Israel's offensive in the besieged uh, Gaza Strip, while waving Palestinian flags and signs reading, Free Palestine, the protesters marched towards Downing Street. They were chanting slogans aimed at the British government and the United States to stop supporting the occupying regime. Around 1,000 metropolitan police officers are on duty to monitor events in the capital. London saw a massive protest last week as well, with tens of thousands of people turning out in solidarity with the Palestinians. At the same time in Sydney, Virtually 1,500 people rallied in the streets chanting free, free Palestine and down, down Israel. It is difficult. Uh, what has been broadcast in the Western media is definitely not reflecting what is on the ground, said protesters Abdullah Ali. It's different. I see parts of children being put in plastic bags. It's extremely hard for anyone to see. People in Muslim-majority countries held protests to show their support for Palestinians in Gaza, demanding freedom for Palestine and an urgent end to the brutal Israeli airstrikes. Also, uh, police in London, as we mentioned earlier, estimated 100,000 people took to the streets uh, for the National March for Palestine. It was a demonstration to denounce Israel's relentless bombing campaign and total blockade of Gaza. We are all united to deliver the same message. We want the violence to end. We're calling for an immediate ceasefire and for necessary humanitarian supplies to be safely delivered to the people of Gaza. Ben Jamal, director of Palestine Solidarity Campaign, said in a post on X, the violence will not end, quote, until you address the root cause, unquote, which is identified as Israel's decade-long military occupation. Chanting free Palestine, holding banners and waving Palestinian flags, the protesters moved through London before massing at Downing Street, the official residence and office of British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Lebanon's resistance movement, Hezbollah, says it has fired guided missiles at an Israeli military base near Lebanese, the Lebanese border of Huala. statement released earlier today, Hezbollah said that its missiles targeted the Al-Abad military site outside the southern town of Hula on the country's border with the occupied territories. It added that part of the technical equipment and technology of the base was destroyed in this attack. In another statement, the resistance movement said its precision-guided missiles also struck the Israeli military base in the town of Hanita. Lebanese sources also announced that Hezbollah was targeting two military vehicles of the Israeli regime in the Baram Heights area near the Lebanese border. Hezbollah Deputy Secretary General Sheikh Naim Qasim said that the latest operations in southern, southern borders are in response to the ongoing Israeli assaults, stressing that the movement will intensify its attacks if necessary. Hezbollah missile attacks come amid Israel's deadly bombing campaign on the Gaza Strip, which followed Operation Al-Aqsa storm of the Palestinian resistance movement Hamas on October 7th. The movement and the Israeli regime have been exchanging sporadic fire since October 8th a day after the regime started its deadly bombing campaign on the besieged enclave. More than 4,380 Palestinians 
Mainly civilians have been killed across the Gaza Strip as a result of Israelis' bombardments. Over 13,000 people have been injured. In a separate development earlier today, Iraqi resistance forces launched a drone strike against the U.S.-run Ain al-Assad base in Iraq's western province of Anbar. This was the second attack on the U.S. military base. On Wednesday, the international media cited an American official as saying that U.S. military forces had come under attack at the Ain al-Assad air base. Iraqi resistance forces reportedly waged drone strikes against the air base housing American troops. Saudi's attack came after Iraqi resistance forces targeted the Al Harir air base housing the American troops in the Shaklata district of Kurd- the Kurdistan region using two unmanned aerial vehicles. Iraqi resistance forces warned the U.S. that attacks against American bases in Iraq will begin from now on after the Israeli regime bombed the Al Mamdani hospital in Gaza. Earlier this month, Iraq's uh, anti-terror group, Katieb Hezbollah, also threatened to target American bases in Iraq and the entire region if the United States intervened in the war that the Israeli regime started waging against the Palestinian territory of the Gaza Strip on October the 7th. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. A pipe bomb has exploded near the Israeli embassy in Cyprus, causing little damage and no casualties, according to police. Cypriot police said earlier today that the blast occurred about 30 to 40 meters from the embassy at 1.37 a.m. local time on Friday in the capital city of Nicosia. It added that four suspects who are reportedly Syrian had been arrested in connection to the incident, which took place as the Zionist regime's onslaught continues with deadly attacks against the innocent Palestinians in the besieged Gaza Strip. And finally, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has criticized the Israeli regime for its continued bombardment and shelling of the people of the Palestinian enclave of the Gaza Strip. He said an attack earlier this month on Israel by the Palestinian resistance movement, Hamas, is no pretext for imposing a collective punishment on civilians living in Gaza. Guterres was addressing a summit in Egypt to discuss the ongoing war in Palestine earlier today. The United Nations chief said Operation Al-Aqsa stormed by Hamas against Israel on October 7th, which killed 1,400 Israeli military forces and settlers, could never justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Guterres called for the protection of civilians in Gaza and sparing of civilian infrastructure, including hospitals, schools, and buildings representing the United Nations. The comments by the UN chief came days after 500 people, mostly women and children, were killed in a massive bombing that targeted a hospital in Gaza where people had taken shelter from the Israeli bombardment. Israel has denied it was behind the attack, despite statements from the authorities in Gaza and the government in the re- governments in the region showing the regime was behind the massacre. Nearly 4,500 people have died over the last two weeks as a result of the incessant bombing and shelling of residential areas in Gaza, a besieged enclave on the Mediterranean, which is home to more than 2.3 million people. Leaders of Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, and the United Arab Emirates, as well as Italy and Spain, and the Palestinian Authority, President Mahmoud Abbas, were present 
in the meeting earlier today in Cairo, which sought ways to deliver humanitarian aid to people in Gaza and to find a settlement to the ongoing crisis. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswide segment of the Pan-African Journal. Concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussion on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access uh, to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, October 21st, 2023, go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
That was uh, the legendary Irma Thomas uh, from New Orleans, Louisiana, with the track entitled Time is on My Side. And time is on the side of the exploited and the oppressed around the world. I'm going to listen uh, to an address delivered earlier today uh, by Republic of South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa at a summit that took place in Cairo, Egypt, uh, dealing uh, with the current Israeli Defense Forces siege of the Gaza Strip, which has been going on now for two weeks. Uh, Well over 4,000 people have been killed. Hundreds of thousands have been displaced. Uh, Today, uh, there was reportedly 20 truckloads of aid allowed to cross the Rafa crossing in uh, to uh, the Gaza Strip. Normally, there are 450 trucks per day delivering assistance to the besieged uh, Gaza Strip. And uh, we're going to be listening uh, to uh, President uh, Ramaphosa, who has been a staunch supporter of the Palestinian people. Uh, his organization, the African National Congress, have been longtime uh, allies of uh, the people of Palestine and indeed the people of West Asia. The situation, uh, as has been covered in the Western media, has been atrocious. Uh, they have uh, attempted to justify. Uh, the ongoing siege. They have not called for a ceasefire, uh, whether it's President uh, Joe Biden of the United States, uh, Prime Minister uh, Rishi Sunak of the United Kingdom, uh, the European Union. None of them have called uh, for an immediate ceasefire uh, in terms of the siege of Gaza uh, being carried out uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces. These guys, particularly the United States, provide massive amounts of aid We gather here united by our deep concern at the unprecedented conflict that has engulfed Gaza and Israel and our distress at the depth and extent of human suffering. As South Africa, we hold the firm view that the attack on civilians in Israel and the ongoing siege of Gaza and the decision to forcibly move the people of Gaza, together with the indiscriminate and cruel use of force through bombing, destruction of infrastructure, that these are violations of international law. More than that, these attacks are an affront to our common humanity. We call for an immediate cessation of hostilities. We call for the release of hostages, the lifting of the siege of Gaza, and we also call for the opening of humanitarian corridors so that basic necessities such as food, medicines, can go through so that provisions of human aid that are required for the people of Palestine can go through. We also call call for a United Nations-led negotiation process towards resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The international community has a duty and a responsibility to support peace 
and to create favorable conditions for negotiations and dialogue. As South Africans, we can relate to what is happening to Palestinians. Our people waged a brave and courageous struggle to achieve their freedom and were subjected to untold suffering just like the Palestinians are going through. But we had courageous leaders who were able to set aside their differences and sued for peace and were able to bring the abhorrible system of apartheid to an end. So we call on all parties to exercise restraint and on all state actors to desist also from providing weapons to either of the two sides to this conflict. We are concerned that the response of the Israeli government to the attack on its citizens will further deepen a conflict that has engulfed the region for many decades and will make the attainment of a just and lasting peace even more difficult. We are also concerned that this conflict could start spiraling out of control and engulf a number of other states in the region. The only way to bring about peace is the fulfillment of the legitimate aspirations of the Palestinian people to human rights, to dignity, and to statehood. This is in line with the decisions that have been taken by the United Nations that guarantees statehood for both Israel and Palestine based on the 1967 borders. The time for us to endorse a prospective vision for the future and that we should work diligently in order to ensure the, palace, the rights of the Palestinian people and that uh, we, ha we have to as well know that the only resolution is to achieve a two-state resolution and uh, for us to establish a sovereign Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital and to uh, activate and put into effect uh, the law or the number 194 resolution of the UN. As well, I call on the Security Council to bear its responsibilities in protecting the Palestinian people and to grant Palestine its complete membership in the Security Council and to acknowledge Palestine as a sovereign independent state and to move towards the peace conference as a sovereign state for Palestine to move towards the conference as a sovereign independent state. Thank you so much, uh, Your Excellency President Abdul Fattah Sisi for hosting this summit and I thank all parties participating in this uh, summit for peace and I, of course I would like to wholeheartedly thank whoever extends a hand of help to our innocent people. Ladies and gentlemen, we will never depart, we will never leave our land. We will never leave our land. And
Your Excellency President, as South Africa, we hold the firm view that the attack on civilians in Israel and the ongoing siege of Gaza and the decision to forcibly move the people of Gaza together with the indiscriminate and cruel use of force through bombing, destruction of infrastructure, that these are violations of international law. As South Africans, we can relate to what is happening to Palestinians. Our people waged a brave and courageous Welcome back. And those were excerpts uh, from an address uh, delivered earlier today by uh, South African uh, President Cyril uh, Ramaphosa uh, at a conference uh, that was held uh, earlier today. Of course, um, the conference was in Cairo, Egypt, uh, right on the border uh, with the Gaza Strip that is being uh, pummeled uh, on a daily basis all day long resulting in the deaths of thousands of Palestinians, the wounding and injuring of tens of thousands more, and the forced removal of hundreds of thousands of the 2.2 million Palestinians who reside in the Gaza Strip, the most densely populated area in the world and the largest open-air prison uh, in the world. We're going to listen to another report on uh, the humanitarian crisis that exists uh, in Gaza. Hello, I'm Marlene Say. This is Counting the Cost on Al Jazeera, your weekly look at the world of business and economics. This week, Palestinians trapped in Gaza plead for much-needed relief. A deal was reached to allow aid into the enclave. But is it enough to avert a humanitarian catastrophe? Also this week, people in Gaza are running out of everything. The United Nations is appealing for millions of dollars in urgent assistance. Plus, Gaza has been under blockade for more than 16 years. We look at how the restrictions on the flow of goods and people have destroyed livelihoods. Gaza is being strangled and it seems the world has lost its humanity. Those are the words of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, as it warns of an unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe. Thousands of people have been killed since Israel launched its military offensive against Hamas and imposed a total siege on the already blockaded enclave. Residents trapped in Gaza have no access to food, water, electricity or even fuel. Hospitals are at breaking point. Borders are closed so there is no escape and nowhere is safe. Even hospitals are being bombed. U.S. President Joe Biden says Israel has now agreed to allow humanitarian assistance to begin flowing into Gaza, while Egypt has agreed to open the Rafah border crossing to allow in trucks. The European Union is launching an air bridge and has tripled its assistance to the territory. The United Nations has appealed for $294 million to address the most urgent needs for the people in Gaza.
Well, the Rafah crossing at the border between the southern part of Gaza and Egypt is the remaining lifeline to the outside world. But the flow of vehicles and goods through it has been tightly controlled since Israel imposed a blockade in 2007. Supplies coming into Gaza through Rafah require Israeli approval. Operations have been disrupted since Israel launched its military offensive now more than two weeks ago. The crossing was severely damaged by Israeli strikes and needs to be repaired before supplies can even be delivered. Hundreds of tons of aid from several countries piled up near the Rafah crossing before the deal to allow in assistance was reached. Karim Abu Salam crossing, which is the sole passage for trucks carrying goods, fuel and aid into Gaza, is closed. To discuss all this, I'm joined now by Sama Hadid. Sama is the Regional Head of Advocacy, Media and Communications at the Norwegian Refugee Council. Thank you for your time. So it does now seem we have this deal, according to the U.S., to allow in 20 trucks of humanitarian aid into Gaza through the Rafah crossing. It doesn't sound like a whole lot. How far is it going to go? The U.S. announcement to allow 20 trucks initially into Rafah crossing uh, to reach Gaza is not enough uh, to deal with the growing daily needs emerging from the Israeli bombardment and siege on Gaza. The U.N. estimates that we need at least 100 trucks, aid trucks to enter Gaza daily uh, to meet the growing humanitarian needs. Um, and we need guarantees as aid workers as well that uh, aid workers distributing aid will be provided with safety and those people receiving aid uh, will also be protected from violence. So we need to see an urgent scale up of the aid supplies going into Gaza immediately. All crossings need to be opened um, and no restrictions should be placed on the amount of aid going in. Right, even if you get what you want in terms of the aid and the safety aspect, what about the infrastructure that has already been damaged so badly, including the crossing itself? How logistically are you able to get the aid through to the people that need it? Well, the destruction of the Rafah crossing uh, in particular needs to be repaired. Uh, we're hearing that there are reports that there are steps being taken uh, to do this. Um, the, the most important uh, message here is that the aid uh, supplies going in should not be restricted and 20 trucks initially is simply not enough to deal with the scale of the needs on the ground in Gaza. There's also been no mention of, of people leaving Gaza through the Rafah crossing. How important is it, at least at the very least, for people who have medical needs to be allowed to go out? It's absolutely vital that people who have been injured, severely injured and wounded uh, during this bombardment are allowed to cross uh, into Egypt to get the medical attention they require. So we're really urging all parties to prioritize medical evacuations uh, for people to receive that treatment. But there must also be guarantees that people are allowed to return and re be repatriated into Gaza as well. Well, that, that is the risk uh, that many people say that they won't be allowed back in, which is why they don't want them to leave in the first place. 
Well, exactly. There are concerns that uh, if people do leave, if safe passage of civilians is granted, that they won't be allowed uh, back into Gaza. So our call is that uh, civilians should be able to leave based on consent, but also based on guarantees that they'd be able to return back into Gaza. But the time is running out right now to protect people from violence. And the bombardment is so intense that it's leading to a a growing humanitarian catastrophe. We're struggling to keep up with the needs that are emerging on the ground. Uh, Fuel is running out, water is running out, electricity is cut. Uh, The services in Gaza have collapsed. Uh, And so that's why it's crucial for us to prioritize that all crossings remain open and there are no restrictions uh, to aid supplies going into Gaza right now to really meet the daily uh, humanitarian needs. Summer Hadid, I really appreciate you talking to us. Summer's Regional Head of Advocacy, Media and Communications at the Norwegian Refugee Council. Thank you. Now, in response to attacks by Hamas on Israel, nations including Denmark, Sweden, Germany and Austria have suspended development aid programs to the Palestinian territories. That includes funding for UN organizations, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and civil society groups. Hamas has been designated as a terrorist organization by the United States and the European Union. And donors say they fear that the armed group could seize or benefit from that aid. Well, joining me now from Brussels is Martin Konechny. He's the director of the European Middle East Project. Many thanks for your time. What do you make of the EU response so far to the humanitarian crisis unfolding in Gaza? Well, uh, it has been initially driven primarily by uh, outrage and shock about the the attacks, uh, the horrific attacks by Hamas, which is understandable. Uh, and this has also led to calls in some EU countries and you know parts of the European Parliament also for suspending EU aid to the Palestinians. The problem with that is that this this uh, very understandable. Uh, an entirely legitimate outrage about what we have seen is not coupled with the same kind of outrage and sympathy for the suffering of the Palestinians over the many years under the blockade of Gaza. The the other problem is that uh, suspending aid is uh, actually punishing the whole population at this moment when the assistance will be most needed. Uh, and uh, thirdly, it is actually counterproductive to the EU's goal because the assistance hasn't been supporting Hamas, but on the contrary, uh, its rival uh, Palestinian authority based in, in the West Bank. So it doesn't make sense rationally from, from these points of view. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about these aid programs and what they're in aid of, because as you say, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, just to name a few, have temporarily suspended their development aid programs to Gaza in the last week or so. What what do these aid programs do? What have they been doing historically? And what happens when you suddenly switch them off? Yeah, so these aid programs support various projects on the ground, both in the West Bank and Gaza. It's, you know, uh, environmental projects, infrastructure such as desalination plants, water treatment plants. Uh, it supports... Uh, 
civil servants of the Palestinian Authority, uh, teachers and doctors especially. It also provides cash benefits to the poorest Palestinian families. Uh, it supports uh, NGOs. It supports uh, projects supporting women's rights, etc., etc. It's very broad. And so switching off this vital support right at this moment when we know what Gaza is going through is uh, is really quite a drastic uh, response. Now, again, the EU has not done this as such. Uh, four member states of the EU, which you mentioned, have temporarily suspended it. They want to review the aid and restart re, uh, it afterwards. But still, it is a very, very problematic response, which I think reflects the wider uh, political um, response to, to the crisis that we have seen in Europe, with some politicians and member states completely taking the side of Israel and again being kind of blind for the Palestinian uh, suffering from which actually this crisis has, uh, has been generated. Are, are concerns over aid ending up in Hamas's hands valid? So the, the assistance of the Europeans has been actually subjected to greater scrutiny than I think anywhere else. Uh, all physical aid that goes to Gaza in terms of, you know, I was talking about uh, plants for wastewater treatment and so on, is actually uh, going there with the approval of Israel and with very close monitoring, very uh, extreme, actually, by international standards, monitoring of every piece uh, of material that goes into Gaza. Uh, all the funding from the EU to individuals like civil servants, Palestinian civil servants, it's actually based on lists which are screened and vetted against uh, international sanction lists. Uh, so there is actually greater control than, than is the usual standard. Uh, there have always been a lot of, uh, you know, suspicions from certain quarters of EU politics about these programs. So there has always been greater attention and a lot of questions about this. And people have been looking into it and reviewing and monitoring this aid very closely. But there is no evidence. Uh, and, you know, these reviews haven't shown any uh, evidence of uh, misuse or okay. diversion of these funds. Unfortunately, we're out of time, Martin. But I really appreciate you speaking to us and sharing your thoughts. Martin Konechti, Director of the European Middle East Project. Now, Israel has ordered more than a million people to leave the northern part of Gaza. It is putting pressure on Egypt to allow them to cross into the Sinai. But Egypt's president says he won't allow refugees from Gaza into his country. Abdel Fattah al-Sisi says that would make the peninsula a target for Israel. Well, Arab countries and the people of Gaza are worried. If Palestinians leave, Israel may never allow them to return. Joining me now from Ramallah is Mazen Sinokrot. He's a former Palestinian Minister of Economy and currently the Chief Executive Officer at Sinokrot Holding. Thank you for joining us, sir. I wanted to start by asking you your reaction to this recent agreement to allow in 20 aid trucks through the Rafah crossing. Well, I think this is, this is a very small start. It doesn't really going to have any impact on the social life of the 2.3 million Palestinians living under this severe closure and being bombarded on a daily basis and every minute there is a bombardment. So 20 trucks uh, only allowing uh, food and medicine 
and no fuel, and you know fuel is a major commodity for the hospitals to operate. Uh, in addition to uh, that, uh, uh, talking about 20 trucks, definitely this is, will not really do any, any social impact for the Palestinians. And that will be also targeted only for the, for the southern part of Gaza, not for the whole uh, Gaza Strip. So it's very shameful that uh, the American administration have been heavily involved in trying to convince the Israelis for the last four or five days and getting uh, out with this uh, very primitive, shameful result. Well, just to add to your point about fuel, it was Israel who has refused the fuel to be included in this aid envoy because they say Hamas will then intercept the fuel and use it for their own uh, reasons. Uh, is that a, a reason that you would be sympathetic with Israel's concerns? No, of course not. Of course not. Uh, I mean, the fuel has been always uh, coming from the Israeli side and it's been uh, channeled with the donor assistance. Uh, especially fuel for the electricity company and also for the daily use of people to move around. So I think, and uh, for hospitals to operate, uh, uh, now the need for fuel is, is, is not uh, less than the need for drugs and, uh, and also food. So I believe that the, the fuel is of high importance for, for at least to, to bring uh, uh, the, the right needed uh, assistance for hospitals to operate in this kind of circumstances. You know that uh, thousands of casualties every day, hundreds of dead people every day. So without having the, 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 the proper functioning for hospitals, that means Gaza will die gradually. Do you think Egypt is right to be cautious in letting refugees from Gaza enter? Well, I think, uh, look, I mean, this is not the solution. Palestinians have, have suffered from uh, the, the Nakba in 1948 and uh, suffered also from the Nuzuh in 1967. And I, th I don't think the Palestinians uh, have, uh, you know, the, the, the appetite to leave their, their, their homelands anymore because they have seen what have happened to the Palestinians since the, the, the Nakba in 1948, those who are living in Lebanon and Syria and Iraq and elsewhere around the world. So I think enough is enough. This is from one hand. The Egypt have the, the, the full right of not accepting Palestinians to come in and to be pushed by the Israeli forces to, to, to leave, uh, to leave, uh, to leave Gaza. Now Egypt have uh, enough uh, Arab refugees from Sudan, from Libya, from, uh, from uh, Iraq, from uh, Syria and elsewhere. And I think they have not less than 10 million people. So I, I, I agree 100% of what CC have said to the, to the German consulate in their press conference. Okay, Mazen, stay with me because I want to get some context to this war between Israel and Gaza. It's, it's worth taking a look back into history because citing security reasons, Israel imposed a permanent blockade on Gaza since Hamas took control of the Strip in 2007. And that blockade restricted who could access the territory and made it difficult for Palestinians to work in Israel. And as a result, Gaza has one of the highest unemployment rates in the world at 46%. Let's come back to you, Mazen. How have Palestinians managed to make a living in Gaza since the blockade? Now, let me remind you and uh, remind the, the people who are watching us, actually, that uh, the blockade uh, have started after the unilateral uh, uh, left, left of Gaza by the Israelis in September 2005. I was part of the higher committee in the government at that time. They did not coordinate with the Palestinian Authority by anything. They just done it alone. They withdrew from Gaza in September 2005. 
Hamas took over after the, you know, the latest elections in the Legislative Council and, the, and, and after 2007. So after Israeli have, the Israelis have left Gaza, they started the complete siege on air by air and sea and land. This is the fact. I was part of the government at that time, and they have witnessed everything in my own eyes, economically and, 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 and also socially, and donors' money and exports and imports into Gaza, and the flow of workers. Everything has stopped after they have left Gaza in September 2005. So how do they survive? If you have no income, how do you live? Look, I mean, uh, Palestinians always, uh, unfortunately, they have always found a way and means to, 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 to live and let live in a way. So adaptation for survival, that was always the theory for coexistence for Palestinians on their own homelands. It was not easy. It was extremely difficult. As, as you have said, 45% of, of uh, people are not working. 50% of the 45 are, are university graduates. 80% uh, of the Gazans are under poverty line for the last 18 years or so. Uh, in addition to that, you know, if you look at the income per capita between the West Bank and Gaza, Gaza is 50% of the income per capita of that in the, in the West Bank. So this has, uh, this long blockade and long siege and long closure on Gaza have shown these indicators. And you know that uh, Gaza, 80% of its inhabitants are actually refugees from, from the 1948, from the historical, uh, you know, geography of, of Palestine. So that means uh, people have been suffering and UNRWA was being the, the, the only player in Gaza because 80% of the people have benefited from the UNRWA and the UN agencies, programs, especially for medical care, education, infrastructure development here and there. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to say that's all the more reason why that aid is so important. Mazen Sinekrotz, former yes, Palestinian Minister of Economy and uh, currently the Chief Executive Officer, Sinekrotz Holding. Thank you. Now, the European Investment Bank has invested millions of dollars both in Israel and Palestine over the past 20 years. Its projects include energy, water, and transport facilities for Palestinians, as well as desalination programs in Israel. Al Jazeera's Hashem Ahlbara spoke to the bank's president, Werner Hoye. He started by asking him about the impact of the war on the bank's operations. But we definitely hope that things will calm down because uh, the projects we are entertaining in, in Gaza, for instance, or in the, uh, the West Bank, they are not targeting at any political destination, but at the support for the people and clean water is something that people urgently need. So uh, this is just one example of uh, what we are doing there. But uh, we are, of course, uh, dependent upon what uh, the political environment allows us to do. Most of your financing now is shifting to tackle climate action. Does it mean that we are likely to see more special funds to deal with climate change and natural disasters, particularly in the African continent? Well, that, that ticks our boxes, I would, I would say. Uh, we, have, we are proud to have been the first multilateral development bank who strong, strongly, most strongly focused on climate action. And uh, we are happy that now everybody is on board and that last year I think it was over 100 billion euros that has been invested in this field. 36 of them come from EIB alone. So we, we are the leader of the, the pack in this respect and we would like to continue. And of course we need to develop new instruments and the ones you just mentioned uh, are, are center stage. We are doing this in several parts of the world, so uh, I think we are aligned with our colleagues, with our peers in the MDB community. You have announced a $1 billion loan for Morocco to tackle the aftermath of the earthquake. Is it going to be solely about 
recovery and reconstruction? Not necessarily, but uh, to be honest, a day after the terrible uh, destruction as a consequence of the earthquake, we have offered the Moroccan government our support and we have uh, now developed ideas that could lead to volume of up to a billion euros for the next three years. But uh, we, we hear, we listen to what the Moroccan government is prioritizing and in this direction the projects will go. But uh, we are strongly committed to this country where we have relations for almost half a century. EIB has been here very, very, very early and the relationship with Morocco is particularly good in this part of the world. Do you see the potential for more investments when it comes to the transition to green energy? Morocco has been establishing a platform over the last few years that could build bridges between Europe and Africa, which has huge potential when it comes to renewable energy. Absolutely. And the hydrogen issue where we are extremely engaged is an area where the idea and the substance of real partnerships can bear fruit. We must live that. We must go beyond the rhetoric. We must walk the talk. And uh, hydrogen is a very good example. That means don't talk only about extraction. Talk about re refining, processing, and uh, opening the, the world for a participation of African countries in the global economy. How do you respond to many African countries saying that it's about time to reform the international financial system? Otherwise, many countries will continue to default on their own debts because they say we cannot afford to continue taking loans from international institutions telling us that you have to impose restrictions, authority measures, spending cuts for you to be able to get the financing. Well, whether it's in Europe or in Africa or elsewhere, sometimes people or countries run into difficulties, debt difficulties, because of their own fault. So let's, let's differentiate. But there are others where you must say they have been victims of unfortunate developments of, of nature or anything, something else, and then we need to have specific solutions to be offered. And we did this. For instance, uh, when, we, when it comes to uh, debt for nature swaps, we are ready to discuss. We are discussing long tenors for uh, developing countries. We, are, have, we have set up this program for countries that are under the specific threat of uh, natural disasters. So we include now uh, nature disaster clauses into our finest agreements. That means if the disaster hits, if a small island state is just about to be washed away, for instance, mm -hmm. then we come in with, a, with, a, with conditions of our loans that are going to take care of uh, this uh, special situation automatically. And it's not necessary for that small island state then to enter into lengthy negotiations with the European Union and EIB. So I think we are on a good, on a good way together with our partners in the Global South. We must bring more life to the idea of real partnership and get away from this donor-recipient thinking. And that is our show for this week. Get in touch with us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Marlene Side. Do use the hashtag AJCTC when you do, or you can drop us an email, counting the cost at aljazeera.net is our address. And there's more for you online at aljazeera.com slash CTC, which will take you straight to our page, which has individual reports, links, entire episodes for you to catch up on. That is it for this edition of Counting the Cost. I'm Marlene Saeed from the whole team. Thanks for joining us. The news on Al Jazeera coming up next. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report on the dire humanitarian <clears throat> situation in Gaza. 
inflicted upon uh, over 2 million people. Mr. Visceral and his backers, principally in Washington, London, and Brussels. Our next uh, report uh, deals uh, with the regional implications of uh, the situation in Gaza today. Let's listen in. People in Arab nations are watching in horror as Israel bombs Gaza from north to south, killing thousands of Palestinians, including many children. What political impact will Israel's onslaught have on leaders in the region? Could there be lasting implications? This is Inside Story. Hello again, I'm James Bayes. Anger is intensifying in Arab nations and among the diaspora at Israel's relentless bombing of civilians in Gaza, where 2.3 million Palestinians are under siege with all vital supplies cut off. Thousands have been killed or injured, many of them children, while entire communities, already refugees, have been left homeless. No one is being spared. Hospitals, UN shelters, churches and residential areas all flattened by Israeli attacks. As the devastation continues, U.S. President Joe Biden and European leaders have reiterated their support for Israel. There have been demonstrations in support of Palestinians far and wide, many expressing anger at the West's solidarity with Israel, despite the brutal bombardment and thousands of casualties. In Arab countries, protests reflect the surge in anger at Israel's onslaught. Our correspondent, Osama bin Javed, sent us this report from a demonstration in Jordan. This is the road which leads towards the Israeli border and like every Friday for the last few weeks people have been coming here to protest against what they call Israeli aggression. This is a country which is home to more than 2 million Palestinian refugees. So what is happening in Gaza and in Palestine, people here are directly affected. They either have relatives or friends or others who are actually inside the territory which is just a few kilometers away on the other end and it is not just here in the Jordanian capital from Cairo to Muscat from Tehran to Amman people have been coming in their thousands to protest against uh, what they call Israeli aggression against civilians they're not just angry at Israel but they're also angry at the international community at their leaders as well where they say that they have not done enough to stop the violence that has been continuing for weeks now. Uh, people are uh, saying that this also is the only avenue that they have to show that they are actually angry, that to show that they're actually concerned and they care about the people who are being affected. Uh, this has also become, in, in, in part of this protest, it will become a concert at times where they will blare songs and then late at night it will become a somber solidarity and support where they will uh, chant prayers. So. This is happening all across the Middle East. These protests are taking place where the international community and the Arab world seem to be on very different ends, where the Western powers have been telling uh, Arab countries that they should exert pressure to, on Hamas to try and release all the prisoners and stop attacks, whereas here there is a consensus that there needs to be a cessation of hostilities from Israel, there needs to be an aid that needs to be allowed in, and the people who are hurt and injured and need to come out of the occupied territories. For Inside Story, I'm Osama bin Javed.
Well, let's bring in our panel of guests to discuss all of this further. We have Hafsa Halawa, who's an independent political consultant who specializes in the Middle East and North Africa. She's joining us from Dubai. We also have Tamara Ben-Halim, a trustee and co-founder of the Palestinian rights organization, McCann. She joins us from Madrid. And Rami Khoury is Distinguished Public Policy Fellow at the American University of Beirut. He joins us today from Boston. A warm welcome to all of you. Well, we're seeing protests all around uh, the, the Arab region. Jordan, Egypt, Tunisia, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Qatar today, the West Bank. Um, can I first maybe ask you, uh, Tamara, about this? Um, I'm going to ask you about Arab opinion, but... We can't really generalize Arab opinion, can we? We're talking about 450 million people. There are 22 countries in the Arab League. But it's pretty fair to say the mood is very angry. Yeah, I mean, rightfully so. You know, I think um, I want to I be careful about how uh, Arabs are always ca characterized as, as angry Arabs. Uh, um, and I'm sure that's not what you meant by, by Western media. But, you know, we have a right to be angry. We're frustrated. We're devastated. We're in despair. We are broken. Hafsa, do we have to distinguish, though, between the countries where protests are spontaneous and the other countries where you can't have any protests at all, and countries where protests tend to be organized. There's been a, a, a day of rage in Egypt, but it was partly organized by the government of Egypt. Thanks, James. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, yes and no. I think that to a large extent, we can generalize to say that the region, its people, and I would argue its leaders as well across the Arab states, have firmly decided to publicly uh, call and uh, you know call out the international community and Israel and say there is a line there is a line this level of violence this level of um of, of anger is indicative of how, you know, this is not happening in a vacuum. It's also happening on the back of not just the Arab Spring, but decades of failed policy to address the Palestinian cause and the issue related to two states or the self-determination of the Palestinian people. Certainly, states that have uh, large and high levels of repression and authoritarianism are seeking to try and contain these protests. We have a list of protests in Egypt, for example, that would be sanctioned. But we've already seen today protests have converged upon Medina Tahrir, Tahrir Square, the old center of the, of the Arab Spring voice, shall we say, uh, certainly for Egyptians and other parts of the country as these marches have decided to converge upon very symbolic sites for themselves. So there is a level of attempting to contain this, but across the board, I think you're seeing a backlash not just against national policies in dealing with Israel and in engaging with this conflict, but also writ large, a wider message to the West that the Arab states are unified. There is a red line. Rami, um, you and I have discussed these sort of issues before, and there have been four previous Gaza wars. I think we've been discussing during those wars before, and I remember 2006 discussing with you the situation, the war um, on Lebanon. Um, how, when you look at the context, how different, though, is this war? It's different in two senses. Uh, one, that the nature of the Hamas attack, whatever one thinks of the uh, ethics of it, if it's... Uh, something you should or shouldn't do. It was a spectacular political statement. Uh, and the statement to people all over the region is that the Palestinians are not helpless and they will not lie down and roll over and acquiesce in their own uh, disappearance from history. Uh, 
uh, and it's also important uh, at the level of the uh, sense that the Palestine issue is now a global issue near the front burner again. It's fascinating uh, to see how people all over the world, <laughs> including the U.S. Senate and others, are focused on Palestine. Much of the Western focus is against the Palestinians and for the Israelis, and the rest of the world is mostly for the Palestinians or equal rights between Israelis and Palestinians. But the key point I want to make here is that we know today, which we didn't know 20 and 30 and 40 years ago when similar things happened, we know today what the majority of Arab people think from polling and, and social media and other things. So the, the reality is that the vast majority of Arabs uh, do not want to have normal relations with Israel and reject the Israeli policies until there is a Palestinian state, and then we're prepared to live in peace with them. So the, the sentiment is critical of Israel widely, and when this kind of thing happens, and much of the West supports Israel blindly, you get this spontaneous eruption, uh, which is routine and normal, but very sincere. But Tamara, most of these Arab leaders were prepared to go along with the U.S. strategy, were they not, in the region? And the U.S. strategy was ignore the Palestinians, go round the Palestinians, do peace deals uh, with, with, with individual Arab countries and try and ignore the Palestinian problem, leave the Palestinian, Palestinians in a box. Well, that may have been the case, but that's not the case anymore. And I think that that's been demonstrated by the hundreds of thousands of protesters uh, from Baghdad to Sana'a to, um, uh, to Rabat to, to all, all corners of the Arab world and uh, Arabs, of course, in the diaspora or, or everywhere across the globe. And I think, you know, we can see that uh, although there's always been a huge disparity between uh, governments, between leaders uh, and their policies towards uh, Palestine and Israel and uh, the actual sentiment uh, on the Arab streets towards Palestine. I think, uh, uh, as Rami said, the vast majority of Arabs have always stood with Palestine. It is an unquestionable thing. It is in our hearts, it is in our minds and in our souls from when we are born. Uh, it is an automatic thing. It is not something that just is, is some kind of intellectual, theoretical thing. Um, and I think that what we've seen most recently with Jordan canceling uh, the summit with Biden a few days ago is that the, the sheer amount of pressure uh, from the streets has seems to have certainly played a role in uh, pushing uh, leadership in places like Jordan and elsewhere uh, to think very carefully about uh, how they are going to approach this issue and to think very carefully uh, and, and to remind people, to remind uh, our leaders that uh, we are not willing to sacrifice uh, Palestinians on the ground and Palestinians in Gaza. Hafsa, can I ask you a question not as a political, political analyst, but as someone who is speaking to a lot of people uh, in Arab countries? I mean... What is the emotional response you're getting from people uh, to a situation where the, 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 the fatalities in Gaza are now um, mm -hmm. so many more than 2014? It's well over that. It's approaching 4,000 now. Uh, the, the official OCHA latest report says that the killing is 60% higher than in 2014. What are people telling you about that? So I think the best way to describe it is a fluctuation between visceral anger and almost 
you know, a paralysis of fear. Uh, the anger stemming from the consecutive messages and statements that we're getting from officials in the West. So, it, you know, with, without disrespect, um, or with respect, I should say, every time somebody from the U.S. government or the British government or the EU speaks, uh, social media, private conversations, uh, broadly speaking across the region, including in the Gulf states, which I think have been less uh, engaged on this issue in, in the sort of more historical sense, uh, the anger is visceral, really, really just, you know, it's a culmination, I think, of a lot of anti-American sentiment that has been very prevalent since 9-11, certainly prevalent since the war in Iraq and has culminated in the various Gaza wars that we've seen as well since 2006. Um, and on the other side, a, a massive pendulum swing to a paralysis of fear, fear for what comes next, whether you're in Lebanon, whether you're in the Gulf states and the question of Iran looming, the question of three-pronged conflict, uh, different stages of how this ground invasion will um will uh, will develop and then of course the very real and i think for the first time really internalized fear in the neighboring countries particularly egypt and jordan that the israeli policy is to occupy and annex the gaza strip and possibly parts of the west bank as this prolongs if it is such a long war as the israeli officials are calling for and real panic because you know, a lot of the security architecture in this region is really built upon the United States as the backer of certain, uh, you know, benchmarks of security, be it the Jordan Peace Treaty, Camp David and others, that there were red lines. And I think now there's panic from the leadership to the very street that these red lines may be completely imploding. And what can we do? What tools are there for us? And really, the only tool that, that Arabs, uh, you know, that the people in the region know how to utilize is their voice. And, you know, beyond just being contained and sanctioned by regimes, I think we're seeing a coalescing of regime, of regional policy and the voices from the street on this issue, both in terms of the anger at the West, but also in terms of the fear of this escalating into a broader regional conflagration. Let's examine some of the countries which are closest to this, Rami. Can I start with Jordan, which has a peace deal uh, with Israel in 1994? I want to go back, even further back than that, because some of the scenes I've seen this week remind me of August uh, and September 1990, um, shortly after Saddam Hussein invaded um, uh, Kuwait. Uh, I remember the protests then, huge protests. I think the Jordanian monarchy were worried at the time. King Hussein, King Abdullah's father, was in power. And in the end, he decided not to join the international coalition. It completely changed, I think, Jordan's policy, or was it a factor in changing Jordan's policy? Uh, do you think this is going to change the way the Jordanian king thinks about things? Uh, I don't think that's going to happen uh, this time, no. And back then I was in Jordan and I heard and saw the missiles from Iraq going, uh, the rockets going over our heads <clears throat> into Palestine and Israel. Um, uh, this time it's, it's very different, I think. You know, we're dealing with pacified, um, almost dehumanized Arab citizenries. They have no political rights. They have few economic aspirations that they can achieve. There's no mechanisms of accountability or serious political participation. Um, and, and they tried everything. And if you go back over the last 10 years, they've had, we've had this amazing regional uprising across almost every country, not quite, but almost every Arab country, not just to protest against the government, but, but try to throw out the government and get something better. And none of them uh, really worked. Tunis worked. 
Uh, Tunisia worked for a while and now it's uh, joined the fold. And so we've got a rising tide of, uh, of photography. So no, I don't think the public protests are going to impact the Arab leaders much. They'll do what they've always done, make small little uh, symbolic gestures. By the way, I thought canceling the meeting with Biden was a huge mistake. Uh, Biden is the guy you want to sit with and explain to him why American policy is so dangerous, both for the region and for Arab countries and for the world. Um, and um, they should not have canceled it. They should have met with them and, and told them what's going on. But let me just add one critical point that I think helps us understand the sentiment of people all over the region. And this has been clarified by the last four or five years. We've seen very clearly a, a shift in how the Arab, uh, the Palestinians, the Arab region, and slowly, slowly people around the world look at Israel. It's now seen more and more uh, frequently as a settler colonial uh, apartheid state. This is very important to understand, and this is what links public opinion to the Arab. Most Arab people were colonized by the British, the French, uh, occasionally other people, and they still feel colonized by the West and by their uh, own political elites in, in some cases. So supporting Palestine is seen as the most available, maybe not effective, but the most available means by ordinary Arabs anywhere can be part of an anti-colonial struggle that goes back a hundred years. Because what the Israelis are doing in Gaza is what they've done all along since the 1920s and 30s, which is try to push the Palestinians out of Palestine, <laughs> take the land, settle it with uh, Jewish immigrants or then Israelis, and make it a Zionist state. And this is unbelievable that it's still going on. And the West widely supports what Israel uh, is doing. And the only thing that an ordinary person can do is protest this. And you see it very clearly, the last point I'll make is, in these incredible statements, everybody in the world, including the local grocer and taxi driver, is, is signing a petition, a name, putting their name to a statement. Professional groups, political groups, universities, there's thousands and thousands of declarations of people all over the world criticizing Israel and the West and supporting Palestinian rights and essentially asking for equal rights between Israelis and Palestinians, not to destroy Israel, but to have equal rights. And so th this is a very profound uh, new development, which wasn't uh, there before. It's partly explained by social media. So we need to understand the deeper drivers and the new surface manifestations of what people uh, really feel, but also recognize that they have no capacity to change Arab politics. Um, and they, they're searching for at least to be able to keep expressing their views. Let me bring in Hafsa on some of those comments you've heard there from Matt Rami. Rami says, it, in his view, it was a mistake to cancel the summit with Biden. One of the others that was going to attend that summit uh, was President Sisi. You are, amongst other things, an expert on Egypt. How do you see the Egyptian response? I mean, we had uh, Secretary of State Blinken given a lecture uh, by President Sisi about the plight of the Palestinians. Um, he, he said it, what had happened was a result of accumulated fury and hatred over four decades. Uh, what, what's your view on how President Sisi is being influenced by the Egyptian street? 
Thank you. So uh, a couple of points. I actually disagree with Romy on the question of the summit, uh, particularly with hindsight when we now know and heard what President Biden said in uh, in Israel when he met with uh, with Prime Minister Netanyahu. I think that it would it, it had become with or without the hospital, uh, in, you know, the hospital bombing, um, which of course made it completely untenable. Uh, very clearly, after six days of shuttle diplomacy from Secretary of State Blinken. Uh, uh, we haven't had any real progress on shifting the American position. And I think that actually it would have put even more pressure domestically on the countries of particularly Jordan and Egypt, let alone Palestinian Authority uh, leader Mahmoud Abbas, who is very embattled at home in the West Bank. Uh, there would have been incredible pressure on them domestically, let alone the broader cause of Palestinian uh, rights and the Palestinian uh, cause itself. So I, I disagree with that point. Uh, to your question on Egypt specifically, I think there's some, you know, a couple of things to unpack that I think are very important here. One, uh, President Sisi, uh, in this regard, on this question, not just on border security with the Rafah border and the Gaza Strip, but also on the wider um, question of Egypt's decades-long policy uh, on this issue, is very much a military position. Uh, this is not President Sisi developing policy unilaterally or on its own. He is buoyed, certainly, by wide public support for the positions that have been put forward. Egypt has grown uh, more and more supportive of the President's statements, at least in this window, this issue, uh, as the West continues to portray this narrative that Egypt is blocking the opening of the Rafah border, that Egypt is preventing aid from getting in because it has some issue on, you know, uh, depopulation and so on and so forth, mass displacement. And the Egyptians have been able to enjoy not just uh, domestic support at home, the Egyptian regime, I should say, but also wider regional support. They've been supported in public statements by King Abdullah in Jordan, by uh, the Emir in Qatar, by the Saudi leadership, by the Turkish leadership, uh, that there will be a collective uh, stand against this question of mass displacement, which we should add the Israelis have regularly said they uh, want to see instead of aid flowing into to Gaza. At the same time, uh, the president is looking to divert attention at home. Um, and even though we've had contained protests, not only have we seen protests reach Tahrir today, we've seen the same chance, similar chance. Um, bread, freedom, social justice on the streets of Cairo that we arguably haven't heard in 13, 12, 13 years, which is a real remarkable shift. And both of these reg regimes, both of these leaderships in, in Cairo and in Amman are having to battle with the fact that they are relative, that they are fragile. They're quite unpopular. The economic situations at home are massive. And no matter how much they try and sustain and contain these protests, there is going to be some fallout and spillover that directly targets them. At the moment, on the Palestinian issue, on the question of the Rafah border, President Sisi is well supported at home, well supported within his military apparatus, well supported with his intelligence apparatus. And I think it should, it should, it's worth pointing out that across the board, there is a level of both surprise and growing anger at the United States in particular, but the broader Western response, especially as this bombardment has increased, this inability to get any movement on aid. We've had five, four to five separate statements from Secretary of State Blinken to spokesmen at the White House to President Biden on the question of the Rafah boarding and humanitarian aid. And it's, it's quite spectacular that till now, 
We've had no security guarantees that convince the Egyptians that the aid, staffing situation, and citizens on both sides are safe and secure if the border were to be opened. Tamara, if I could ask you now, um, the point that uh, Hafsa made there about fragile governments, do you think there's a possibility some of these leaders are going to start getting worried that some of these protests could endanger them, that other concerns will, 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 will be swept up in this? I don't know. Honestly, the answer is I don't know. And, and I just, I just want to take the, the last kind of couple minutes I have because I know my connection hasn't been stable to actually pick up on Hafsa's point about, uh, that Egypt does not feel, um, that its concerns have been, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, dealt with or, or listened to in terms of that if they open the border, uh, Palestinians will be safe. Uh, one of the steps towards committing genocide is the forced removal of people. We have to be talking about this situation as an impending, if not an actual, genocide. This is why Arabs on the streets, people around the world, young American Jews who are blocking Capitol Hill's entrances, uh, 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 people all around the world, across the Islamic and Arab world and the global south and in London and in Madrid and elsewhere and in Paris, where they've banned protesting uh, for Palestine, are standing up because we are seeing a crime against humanity, the crime against humanity unfolding in front of our very eyes. Where leaders okay. around the world let me, like let me quickly at the end bring in Rami because are not we have standing we have up. I'm sorry, are not are not standing up, and so the people have to stand up, and the Arabs understand this. We understand. Rami, this. Rami, very quickly, a last question to you. This will have to be a teaser for a future program because there's a whole program to discuss on this. But public opinion in Lebanon. That's a complicated one, isn't it? Because, you know, you've had the Beirut bombast, you've had economic crisis, one of the worst crises anywhere in the world's faced in recent years. There are a lot of people there who are very worried about the war spreading. Yeah, I lived in Lebanon for like 25 years, and um, it's a very peculiar place. Uh, they uh, have suffered more than any other Arab country, I think, from the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, but also they have developed the only force that has ever deterred the Israelis and forced them into a, a, a truce along the Israeli-Lebanese uh, border, which is uh, Hezbollah. But Lebanon is a, a patchwork of uh, sectarian groups. It's not a very clearly integrated, uh, strong country. And, of course, it's economically shattered. Uh, so it's not a, a normal country that you can analyze like Jordan or Egypt or Morocco or uh, or, or others, but it remains an important uh, country because of the presence of Hezbollah and Hezbollah's links with uh, Hamas and other uh, uh, groups uh, like that. So we need to keep our eye on it. I want to make one last statement. Palestine cause is one of four causes that generates massive, spontaneous and recurring demonstrations all over the world. Climate change, Black Lives Matter, you know, racial justice, anti-colonialism. Me Too, women's rights, and Palestine. Those are the four causes that are now global causes. And we see it now this week, as we just heard. So we, people have to understand what this means, not just for Arabs, but for the uh, global south. And this really must be seen in a colonial, anti-colonial uh, context, because that's what we're witnessing. Well, thank, thank you very much indeed. We must look at Lebanon again on another program. But thank you very much to our panel. Thanks to all our guests, Hafsa Halawa, uh, Tamara 
Ben Hallin and Rami Khoury. A really interesting conversation. If you want to see it again, the program's always available online. To find it, go to our website, aljazeera.com. What did you make of today's conversation? And do you have any views about any other aspect of the Gaza war? Go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And we'll take your comments too on X, formerly known as Twitter. We're at AJ Inside Story. We'll be back here soon from the team. Stay safe. Bye for now. That was a report on the regional implications of the Israeli Defense Forces uh, siege of Gaza, a siege that's backed politically, militarily, and economically, and diplomatically uh, by uh, the United States administration of President Joe Biden. We'll take a break, and we'll come back with our concluding segment of the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, October 21st, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. One day, child, I won't have to listen to your lies. On that day, I'll be able to make up my own mind. You know, I think I done finally realized, yes, I have. And now I think I can put you out of my life. I'm going to be free, yes, I am. Oh, oh. I'm going to be free, child. I'm gonna be free. Oh, oh. Free. Yeah.
People all over the world want to be free. 
uh, of course, in Palestine and other geopolitical regions around the world. Our final segment deals uh, with the role of the United Nations uh, in the current uh, siege of Gaza, which has killed uh, over 4,000 people, injured tens of thousands of others, and displaced millions. Let's listen in. A region reeling in pain and one step from the precipice. Those are the words of the UN chief Antonio Guterres during an urgent diplomatic mission to help Gaza. 2.3 million Palestinians are living under Israel's siege and constant bombing. So what can Guterres hope to achieve? This is Inside Story. Hello again, I'm James Bayes. The UN plays a vital role for the 2.3 million people living in Gaza. The majority of them depend directly on the aid it provides. But the toll of suffering and death is worsening daily. Israel's bombing of the besieged enclave has killed more than 4,000 Palestinians, many of them children. The US and Western leaders have reaffirmed their support for Israel, with Washington pledging more funding for bombs and other weapons. The deepening catastrophe has brought UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres to the region on his own diplomatic mission. His first priority to try and get some relief for the people of Gaza. Yesterday, I went to the Rafah border crossing. There I saw a paradox, a humanitarian catastrophe playing out in real time. On one hand, I saw hundreds of trucks teeming with food and other essential supplies. On the other hand, We know that just across the border, there are two million people without water, food, fuel, electricity, and medicine. Children, mothers, the elderly, the sick. Full trucks on one side, empty stomachs on the other. Those trucks need to move as quickly as possible in a massive, sustained, and safe way from Egypt into Gaza. A 20-truck convoy of the Egyptian Red Crescent is moving today. And I want to express my deep gratitude to Egypt for the essential role Egypt is playing in this regard. But the people of Gaza need a commitment for much, much more. A continuous delivery of aid to Gaza at the scale that is needed. And we are working non-stop with all parties that are relevant to make it happen. Few doubt the personal commitment of Antonio Guterres to his mission, but what obstacles does he face and how important is the UN for the people of Gaza? We're discussing all these questions and more with our panel of experts soon, but first let's hear from someone who knows the Secretary General and the delicate political situation well, France's permanent representative to the United Nations, Ambassador Nicolas de Riviere. Ambassador, thank you very much for joining us on Al Jazeera. Let's talk about that aid that's been allowed in so far, just 20 trucks for 2.3 million people. How concerned does France remain about the humanitarian situation in Gaza? Thank you for having me, James. I think uh, we remain uh, very concerned, of course, with the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Uh, The situation in Gaza is a disaster. First, I want to uh, explain that this whole situation is uh, because of the terrorist attack by Hamas on October 7 against Israel. Uh, It all started there. Uh, And uh, because of that, uh, we are just in the middle of a huge crisis in in Gaza, and we need to address that. 
the human deterrent situation is uh, uh, dire, of course. There are ongoing efforts by the UN Secretary General, by the United States, by my minister as well. Uh, she has been uh, in the region a week ago. She's back in the region. She's now in Cairo. We are just asking for humanitarian pause. 20 trucks have been able to cross uh, the Rafa uh, point, which is good, but obviously far from enough. So we need much more. Part of the equation is both to allow Israel to address the security threat posed by Hamas, uh, and this should not be negotiable, but on the other hand, allow for large humanitarian relief for all the civilian population of Gaza, protect the civilians, respect the Geneva Conventions, and uh, put in place, quote-unquote, a humanitarian pause, which is absolutely needed to do that. Ambassador, you say that uh, Israel's response should not be negotiable, and you've strongly supported, like other Western nations, Israel's right to defend itself. But is what we're seeing really legitimate defence, or is this brutal collective punishment and revenge we're seeing now? Legitimate defense uh, is allowed, and uh, after this terrorist attack, Israel is uh, totally entitled to go after Hamas terrorists, uh, but the civilian must be protected, and this is essential. Uh, we need to have a full implementation of the Geneva Conventions, the so-called law of the war, uh, international humanitarian law, and we need uh, humanitarian access to be uh, granted uh, in Gaza. We need to protect the civilians, and there are many civilians in this uh, enclave of Gaza. So uh, this is absolutely key, and France will be uh, extremely vigilant on, on these uh, requests. Ambassador, we saw the Secretary General, a man you know very well, go a place that Secretary Generals don't normally go, to the edge of an active war zone, um, uh, to Rafah. Uh, on the border with Gaza. That was a pretty bold piece of public diplomacy, was it not? I think uh, we should all support the effort of Antonio Guterres. Uh, he's, uh, he's on the ground, he's in Cairo. Uh, he's trying very hard to grant humanitarian access to Gaza. That's his job. Uh, in parallel, I think we should really uh, get back to the Security Council to make sure that this... Uh, body makes a decision on the issue, both on uh, this legitimate defense issue, condemning uh, clearly the attack by Hamas, because this is the reason why we are there today, and also uh, protecting civilians, granting humanitarian access, uh, respecting the Geneva Conventions, and uh, also uh, referring to the two-state solution, because at the end of the day, it will not be resolved by humanitarian access and uh, retaliations. We need the, the parties to sit at the table, and we need to relaunch a, a credible uh, Middle East peace process. There hasn't been one since 2014. Well, let's bring in our panel of guests to discuss this further. Mansour Schumann is a human rights advocate and resident of Gaza. He joins us from Khan Yunus. Francesca Albanese is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territory. She's joining us from Washington, D.C. And Donatella Rivera is the Senior Crisis Response Advisor at Amnesty International. She joins us by Skype from London. Warm welcome to all of you. If I can start with you, um, Mansou, on the ground in Khan Yunis in Gaza. Twenty trucks came in 
today, just 20 trucks for 2.3 million people. Tell us what is the feeling, what are things like right now in Gaza? Thank you for having me. Uh, when the people here heard that only 20 trucks came in, honestly, there was a feeling of despair and shock, uh, uh, while at the same time feeling that uh, we are all alone here in this. Uh, the international community, uh, uh, the, the, the powers, so be it, are not caring for the civilians here in Gaza. We are in the 15th day of this aggression on the civilian population. Over 4,000 killed, 15,000 injured. Electricity has been shut off. Water taps have been shut off. And now we are getting only 20 trucks supplying 0.02% of the need after 15 days. Normally, the Rafah crossing border gets at least 150 trucks every day. Multiply that by the 15 days with no supplies. Add to that the hundreds of thousands displaced and consuming the, the supply rations in other people's food, in other people's area. We are looking here at disaster. We are looking here at human genocide of the 21st century. And people are, uh, they are both mad, fed up, and feel they're all on their own. And Mansour, just to be clear, even though there was this opening of Rafa very briefly for 20 trucks, the bombardment continued even then and is still continuing, I believe. Yes. Um, uh, just before we started recording, uh, the adjacent UN school, besides where I'm staying right now, got hit by two uh, suicide groups. Uh, so the bombardment is ongoing. It is not stopping. Also, the people here, when they, when they understood what were in those 20 trucks, they were like, they were in shock. I mean, there are, there are gloves, masks, uh, coffin wraps. Um, I mean, is this really the most important thing to provide to the people of Gaza at this stage? Okay, let me bring in Francesca Albanese now. I need to make clear, I think, as we're discussing the UN and aid and its role, you are a special rapporteur, uh, but we've been speaking about the Secretary General of the UN. You don't actually work for him. We need to be clear, you're completely independent in your role, uh, and you're appointed by the, by the Human Rights Council. Uh, your reaction to 20 trucks of aid, simple math, one truck for 100,000 people. Uh, good morning, and thank you for having me. I don't think that my reaction can be any different from that of Mansour, uh, saying it's, it's insufficient, and it's insufficient, it's inadequate, although it's necessary. So let me be clear, humanitarian aid is needed, and it has been needed for a long time, even before the 7th of October, because Gaza has been under a 16-year blockade, which had already pushed 2.2 million people in a very critical situation. But the, the, the most important thing is that a ceasefire is declared. There is a need to stop the killing of civilians that has already made 4,000 victims. Uh, mind you, this is almost the same amount of people who have been killed in Gaza in five pre uh, prior um, uh, conflicts. 
and, um, and further loss of life must be spared. At the same time, humanitarian aid is necessary and needs to enter from all crossings, not just Gaza, including the, the crossings in, in Israel, Eret and Kerem Shalom. There is no reason why this should not happen. And uh, the, what I also think that what is needed from the international community and the UN Security Council, which is ultimately responsible for the maintenance of peace and security globally, is a robust principle that even handed uh, stands on this issue, because it's leading not only millions of people in Gaza into the abyss, but it's threatening peace and security for all Palestinians and Israelis and unfortunately beyond. Donatella, you represent Amnesty International. You are a war crimes investigator. What do you make of the fact that even while they let the aid in, they continued the bombardment of Gaza? And it's continuing, as Mansour said, in the last few moments. Well, first of all, um, on, on the aid, because this is really important, the, the 20 trucks of aid that went into Gaza did not contain fuel insofar as we know. And fuel is essential to produce electricity, which is essential to purify water and deliver water to people. There is a public health crisis that is unfolding in Gaza with waterborne diseases because people have no clean water to drink. Uh, so, so, you know, it, the 20 trucks is not just a, a, an issue of how little uh, went in, but also of what was missing, which is so desperately needed. The bombardments have been going on uh, daily. I've also heard from our field worker uh, in Gaza a short while ago about uh, new airstrikes that have been carried out. Thousands of civilians have been killed and injured. The tragedy is that Gazan civilians do not know where can they go, what can they do to protect themselves and their children? Because really, nowhere is off limit. Myself and my colleagues have been investigating cases where entire families were wiped out. People who had left their homes because they felt that their homes were in areas that were more exposed, closer to the perimeter with Israel, and they went to stay with friends and relatives in areas further in, which they thought were less exposed. And those places were bombarded and they end up being killed. Uh, the bombardments are indiscriminate. Indiscriminate attacks are war crimes. And these war crimes are being committed on a daily basis. Uh, and the reaction of the international community is shameful. Uh, because while it's absolutely true that Israel has every right to take proportionate measures to protect its own population and to respond to attack, it does not have the right to indiscriminately attack civilians who are packed into one of the most densely populated areas of the world and who have no possibilities to leave that area or to do anything whatsoever to protect themselves because the bombardments have targeted every area of the Gaza Strip, every type of structures, small houses, big buildings, schools, um, hospitals for that matter. So people really don't know what to do and, and the bombardments are continuing and I absolutely agree that the you know, most urgent, urgent measures is for these uh, indiscriminate attacks to end uh, immediately and, and the efforts of the international community should first and foremost 
be concentrated on exerting the necessary pressure to ensure that all parties fly with international humanitarian law. Uh, Israel is not above the law and it should not be allowed to behave as though it is, which unfortunately is the case because 15 days into these uh, indiscriminate bombardments that have killed and injured so many civilians, the international community could not bring itself to to demand that indiscriminate attacks stop. Let me, bring in, let me bring in Mansour now on one of the points that you made, Donatello, which was the importance of fuel. Um, clearly, there are only, um, not all the hospitals, many of the hospitals not operating. Those that are operating re- rely on electricity from generators that need fuel. And as Donatello said, in order to operate desalination plants, pumping stations, you need fuel for vital water. Give us some, some more detail on fuel and also on, on, on water. I mean, I hear, Mansour, people are even drinking seawater or unsafe water from agricultural wells. That's a great point. Actually, yesterday I was on a, uh, I was on a call with a reporter from the CBC, and she asked me, what is the main item, if you had a choice, that must be available in these trucks that come in? So the answer that came up to my mind immediately was fuel. Um, and I was shocked again. Maybe I, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't be. It seems like it's going to be an ongoing process here. Knowing there was no fuel coming in, um, that's a death sentence here. Because right now there is no electrical grid here in Gaza. Uh, people rely on electrical generators that are running on fuel. Uh, erected cell gen- electrical generators. As an example for that, the hospital that I'm beside right now. Uh, so, like you said, the desalination plants. Uh, with regards to the water, uh, from personal experience, from my family's experience, from the people around me right now, everyone here is suffering from some kind of digestible uh, tract uh, uh, disorder uh, because of the unpure water that we're all drinking. Uh, we're all, I mean, it's, it's like, like, like your colleague in the studio said, uh, my fear, my biggest fear right now is the rise of a, of a pandemic within this very crowded, closed space here amongst 2.3 million congested in open schools, on the streets, in crowded homes, with no medication, no clean water, and the food that is almost going to run out as well. We are, in, we are in a crisis, and we need a solution. Francesca, you, as well as being the special rapporteur, you are a lawyer by profession. Um, The World Health Organization has documented 62 attacks on healthcare um, uh, areas, 29 healthcare facilities in particular, and 23 ambulances. Are these war crimes? I do think so, yes, because our hospitals should be uh, should be protected at all times. And look, I think that here we need to. fully agree with Donatella's analysis. And we need to maintain um, the capacity to analyze its in, each incident, but also consider the, the, the let's say, the broader, the broader picture, just of what's going on in Gaza. Because again, we have an international community and particularly Western countries who have rallied against, um, sorry, uh, who have rallied a- around Israel and defending and repeating like a mantra uh, Israel's right to self 
defense, but it, we shouldn't forget that the population of Gaza uh, uh, is a, constitutes protected persons under international law. Israel is occupying Gaza. Israel is keeping Gaza under siege and has responsibility toward the Palestinians in Gaza. What we have seen is that the bombing of there have been bombings of hospitals. And by the way, there is one which is, which is likely to happen as we speak because the Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza, which is currently sheltering 400 people, including 12,000 displaced, has been ordered uh, to, to evacuate, which is impossible. The, 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 the hospitals are full of people uh, in, uh, in, who cannot be moved. And, um, and so these are clearly war crimes. And which is enough to stop what Israel has started on the 7th of October, because the, under the opaqueness of wanting to eradicate uh, Hamas, uh, Israel is, is, uh, is pursuing an entire campaign which seems to be intended to depopulate Gaza. Because it's bombing from north to south, but it's also ordering the evacuation of 1.1 million uh, Palestinians from from the northern part of the of the strip, which uh, which is the largest, and leading to an amassment of people in the in the south. This might amount to ethnic cleansing, and there is an intent that has been declared because there are various officials who have gone on record saying that the Gazans should go to the Sinai, that there are housing units and they will receive all the assistance they need. But there is also the precedent of under the fog of war, Israel has already committed ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians in 47, in 1947, 1949, 750,000 Palestinians, uh, mostly more from modern day Israel, were uh, displaced, became refugees and were in Never allowed to return, and the same thing in 1967. 350,000 Palestinians have been uh, have been uh, displaced and never allowed to return to the Gaza Strip, West Bank, and East Jerusalem. This is mm-hmm. happening now as well. We're obviously some of the things we're discussing today are aid and also the role of the United Nations. And as you'll be aware, the UN is operating on the ground with the Red Crescent, one of the few organizations operating on the ground. And it's worth noting that 17 UNRWA staff, that's the agency of the UN that deals with the Palestinians, have lost their lives already. So we know there's very good humanitarian work going on from the United Nations. But also we've seen uh, to get this very limited 20 trucks in personal diplomacy from the UN Secretary General, um, pretty bold in the sense that he went to the edge of an active war zone. Let's just listen to what he said. Behind these walls, we have two million people that is suffering enormously. That has no water, no food, no medicine, no fuel. That is under fire that needs everything to survive. So these trucks are not just trucks. They are a lifeline. Well, that's the Secretary General speaking before those trucks were allowed in. Uh, But it is worth noting, Donatella, isn't it, that it took him a week even to call for a ceasefire. Are you happy with the way the Secretary General has been performing? Well, I mean, ultimately, the United Nations is a collection of states, and the Secretary General is... um, presiding over uh, what is an you know, intergovernmental body. 
uh, with many different opinions. Um, I think that what's very important to um, bring to the attention of your viewers with regard to humanitarian aid is the reason why the Gaza Strip depends so much on humanitarian aid at all times, already before the 7th of October. It's not because the Gazan people don't want to work. It's because in order to have any sort of economy existing, it is required that there be free movement of people and goods. With the Gaza Strip being under a full blockade for the past 16 years, um, with Israel controlling everything that goes in and out, it is impossible um, for uh, Gaza to develop any meaningful sort of economy. And therefore, the, the regime, uh, you know, before this disastrous situation that un- that's been unfolding since the uh, 7th of October, it's the premise, the two... 0.3 million people should be kept in a, in a situation where they are prevented from developing an economy to sustain themselves, and they should be forever dependent on humanitarian aid that can be switched on and off at a whim, which is what has happened now uh, and which has happened many times before. Can I bring in Francesca on the UN's response? And what did you make of what we saw in the Security Council. The US wielding its veto to stop a resolution allowing humanitarian pauses for aid to be distributed and the US ambassador as I understand it said that they they vetoed because uh, the resolution would get in the way of diplomacy. Does that make sense to you? No, it doesn't and it is not the first time that the what comes out from the let's say the behind the, the behind the scene works of the of the UN and the Security Council in particular doesn't make sense to me or to any reasonable person. Just for the benefit of the viewers, it, we we have to say that, that again there is a, a the UN are uh, providing critical assistance as they can on the ground and there are various actors WHO, uh, ANWA, uh, WFP trying to mobilize. There is an entire humanitarian community trying to push for a, a, a wise solution, which cannot happen without a ceasefire. But there is the political echelon, and particularly the Security Council, which has been paralyzed once again by the U.S., because the U.S. is the only state which vetoed the resolution. Even Russia and the U.K. abstained. Uh, it, and, and again, there is this misunderstanding, this clear misperception of what's going on on the ground, because there is um, the, the argument, including here in the U.S., is that it's a ceasefire is a, is a politically loaded word because it means constraining uh, Israel's ability to protect its citizens. Now, how on earth what Israel is doing uh, in killing thousands of civilians, destroying entire families. 47 families have been cancelled from the civil registries, five generations of people. How destroying entire neighborhoods, hospitals and schools is going to bring this, uh, security and protection to the Israelis? Okay, How? Let, me, let, let, me, let me bring in Mansour at the end of our discussion then. When you hear what's going on, yes, the UN is doing good humanitarian work, when you hear the sort of discussions going on at the Security Council, you hear what the U.S. is doing, tell us what people in Gaza make of that. The people in Gaza uh, believe that the U.S. will support Israel in what, what, whatever they do. Um, there, there is no belief in the system 
by the people of Gaza. There's no belief in how the UN is running, how the Security Council is, is, is running. Um, the people of Gaza uh, are saying one sentence, that our, we are relying only on God, and God will hopefully uh, take us to a better place in the near future. Uh, people here are not putting any hope on the, U, on the U.S. or the U.N. or the WHO. Uh, it seems that it's a, it's a strong, eat, weak world. And uh, is that why the UN was created, to do such things? I mean, uh, if more people, like our two guests, uh, ran the UN and the WHO and the Security Council, with many of our rational free human beings out there, I think that wouldn't be where it is right now. Mansour, thank you very much, and please stay, stay safe. Thank you to all our guests, Mansour Schumann, Francesca Albanese, and Donatella Rivera. If you missed the start of the program, you can always watch the whole thing again at Al Jazeera. Welcome back. Uh, that was a report and analysis of uh, the humanitarian crisis and the role of the UN in the siege of Gaza. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. If you'd like to have access to this program, Go to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you want to read the Pan-African Newswire, go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of Jimi Hendrix, Machine Gun, from the Isle of Wight, uh, August 31st, 1970. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. (laughs) 